Thank you for listening to the Bible preaching ministry of Dr. Tim Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. All right, this morning, our Sermon on the Mount. Today's message, our eighth installment, and now next Sunday, a little different uh, Christmas sermon. And then uh, we'll uh, probably maybe have another one more installment, and then we'll be talking about the book of Revelation for a few weeks, and then we'll pick it up again, uh, probably in February. Described as a decade of change, the 60s had some very interesting phrases. Far out, groovy, I remember saying those things. One of the sayings that we had was actually a philosophical statement. Usually with a psychedelic background or something, it was do your own thing. Do your thing. The idea was live, act, behave in the way that you want to. Don't pay attention to any of the conventional mores, the traditional values, or other people's hang-ups about morals. The idea was don't let anybody tell you what to do. Don't let God, don't let the Bible, don't let your parents, your husband, your wife, your boss, or anybody else. Now 50 years has passed from those 50 plus years have passed since that time. And what we hear today are things like this, that people with higher morals or values are called conservatives. Often they will say they're fascist, misogynist, racist. They repeat tired phrases like, hey, you cannot legislate morality or keep your hands off of my womb. If anybody wants to change sexes, what's the problem? That's just an alternative lifestyle, no different, no worse, no better, they say. If a man wants to marry a man or a woman wants to marry a woman, what's the difference? Other things they repeat often, European colonialism is immoral. We are not gonna let religion tell us what to do. And certainly not, we're not gonna allow any antiquated Victorian suppressionism. On and on the list goes. Tenured socialist professors warp the minds. I say they warp the minds of impressionable college-age young people that are so eager for something new. Liberal media, 24-7, non-stop spouts anti-Christian hate. You would think that the Church of God would stand strong and would uh, be on the solid rock. And yet, unfortunately, the narrative, the false narrative, has infiltrated the Church of God. Books like Love Wins, which is uh, a book about fake love, not real love, not Bible love, blatantly wrong, or those who have that philosophy of extreme grace that never worry about what the Bible says, that would be legalism. 
Now folks, all of the things I just said, pretty heavy intro into this message, but really, it really sets the stage for what Jesus said. Surprisingly, 2,000 years ago, that's pretty much the intro in as many words that Jesus gave. He said to them, he said, look, if you think I have come to somehow get rid of the Bible and all those standards, you are wrong. In fact, he said, I have come to fulfill the law and even bring it to the highest possible point. And so 2,000 years ago, our Savior unashamedly stood on the authority of Scripture. His faithful message then is our faithful message today. The Bible never teaches, not even once, that God has ever or ever will alter any of his biblical standards ever. They are truth. Truth never changes. Thank God for the authority of Scripture. A mild-mannered young husband came into his minister's office. He was ready for a divorce. He complained. He said, my wife is so bossy, just driving me up a wall. He said, things have got to change, and they've got to change immediately. The pastor felt like he probably should try to build the self-esteem of this young man, so he figured it might take a little bit of time, so he gave him a book on assertiveness. Well, this guy was so desperate to change, he took the book and read it all on his way home to see his wife. After he had read that book, he was determined to be a victim no more. This mixed up guy about leadership (laughs) stormed into his house walked up to his wife and he said, from now on, I'm the boss. Tonight, you are going to prepare me a gourmet meal. And then after that, you are going to bake for me a fabulous dessert. And then after dinner, you're going to draw me a bath so I can relax. And then when I'm finished, guess who's going to dress me and comb my hair? Calmly, his wife replied, the funeral director. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, I don't think that'd go over too well. A little mixed up about authority, I'd say. But I will say this, God is never mixed up about the authority of his word. And I believe today that this message is so important. Uh, Really, a a lot of people just find themselves kind of wishy-washy and not able to figure things out when God's word is so true and we can stand on it. It gives such stability in our life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity today. I love this topic as well as I'm so grateful for this great passage. We thank you. Give us uh, your insight in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus appeared on the scene of Israel as a teacher quite startlingly. In a very dramatic way, his message was captivating. Even though he had been around for 30 years or so, nobody really knew much of him outside of Nazareth, where there they just knew him as the carpenter's son. And then all of a sudden, after his baptism, he hit the ground running. His ministry was so engaging. As a result, there was lots of talk going on. They didn't have television or telephone, but they had tele-Jew. And uh, it, it went everywhere, even to the little villages and went to the cities. Everybody was talking about Jesus. 
what kind of a rabbi is this? What is he talking about? I mean, it seems so different. In fact, they said he speaks as one who has authority. It seems so unique because the, uh, the prevailing religious thought of the day was given either by the Pharisees or by the Sadducees or the Essenes or a few others. They were used to the, just the deadening sense that they would listen to somebody, didn't even understand probably. And if what they did understand, it was so legalistic and deadening, it was just terrible. They felt shamed, they felt bullied, they felt empty. It just, religion was no good. It's just nothing good about it. And so that when Jesus stood up on this Sermon on the Mount and he began to speak his first public recorded sermon, it, is, it was just amazing. It was not only tremendous in its eloquence, but I remind you it was amazing in its sequence. Some people don't understand how that the Sermon on the Mount was a masterpiece of presentation. Notice how he starts. He starts off by saying, who would like to be happy? Well, I'm sure that got everybody's attention. Who doesn't want to be happy? He said, well, I'm going to give you eight steps how to be happy, but I will tell you, it's going to be a little different than you're used to. He began by saying, you must be poor in spirit, not poor mouthing, just you need to understand your great need of God. In order to do that, you have to mourn over your sin. And if you mourn over your sin, that will lead you to meekness, which, of course, leads you to a sense of humbleness. When you're humble, God will meet with you. You will seek and hunger and thirst after righteousness. And as a result of that, you will have a pure heart and a peacemaking spirit will follow. However, surprisingly, you won't be everybody's friend. Because you're going to be so different, they're going to talk about you. In fact, they're going to hate you. They're going to pull you over councils. They're going to throw you in jail. This happy, Christ-filled life is actually going to create some trouble for you in the sense of your personal life. But you're going to be so happy because you're pleasing God. So what should you do? Keep being the salt. Keep being the light in your community. Infiltrate, be there. And uh, you can do this. The next question is, how do we do that? That's today's sermon. That's, here's how you do it. You are a Bible-believing Christian. And that's the theme of what he said. Be a Bible, back-to-the-Bible person. False religion of that day had added so much to the Bible. They had subtracted so much from the Bible. They had so... Uh, misinterpreted the Bible. Nobody really knew what the Old Testament was like anymore. And Jesus stood up there and said, this book is perfect. This is, the law of the Lord is perfect. It converts the soul. It makes wise the simple. It is a beautiful book. He said, don't allow false religion to steal the power of the Bible. Being a Bible believer is not being out there on right field. No, it is a tremendous way to live. And so he proceeds in this passage to both clarify and then fortify their faith. So now let's read together, if you would, verses 17, 18, 19, and 20. These four verses are powerful. Let's read it out loud together, all right? And uh, you have the PowerPoints here. Ready, begin. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. 
For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jaw or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Four truths, four verses. Truth number one, the permanence of scriptures. First and foremost, think not that I am come to destroy the law. He said, look, God's truth is always true. It never evolves, it never changes, it never alters, and it never adapts. God's word will never change. It is always the same. It is a standard from day one. To Jesus, God's law, scripture, God's written word, was not only preeminent, it was permanent. Notice what he said, think not. Actually, you could just flip those two words. You are not thinking. <laughs> You're not thinking what's going on. Why would God give you truth and then say, no, it's no longer true? Why would God give the truth and say, but now it's done with? And folks, you cannot believe the amount of the evangelical church that has that crazy idea that somehow God gave the truth and then God took it away. It's no more for us. Now, they often misinterpret wonderful scriptures. Perhaps some in the church today misunderstand Jeremiah 31, 31. It is a prominent verse. It's one that just about everybody's heard if you've been in church for a while. It's called the verse of the new covenant. Now let me give you the setting just for a moment. Jeremiah was writing from Jerusalem. He was writing to Judah, the southern tribes. They were exiled to Babylon. They were upset, obviously. They had been taken away from their country. They were broken. They were discouraged. God gave Jeremiah a divine dream of his glorious plans to restore his people. His point, there had been so much lies, so many false prophets, pastors even called them. He said, you need the truth. Here's the truth. God has made a covenant to his people. Now, thankfully, he's got a new covenant. He's got something else he's going to add to that. And so let's look at it. Verse 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, to be sound in your interpretation, you must know the primary interpretation is that this is about Israel. Many of us understand, as we go through this, that this new covenant that God was giving, what is this new covenant? Now, there are people out there who are dispensationalists, ultra-dispensationalists. Others who are antinomians, which means no law, we kind of do what we want. They wrongly say that the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration is only a New Testament thing. That there was no Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, which I always like, what? There was no Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? 
God has always been a trinity. He was in the Old Testament just like he's in the New. Now it's maybe true his ministry uh, altered a bit, but he, uh, you can't uh, miss the fact that he filled David and filled Saul and filled Elijah and so many others. Folks, old, some, some of them, these dispensationalists, will even say that Old Testament people did not get born again in their lifetime. They were saved on credit. I, I remember hearing one person say, Old Testament saints were saved on credit. I'm like, what in the world does that mean? Their idea was that they really didn't get saved until Christ came. They just were sort of saved. They kind of, they were, you know, on borrowed time. I think that is ridiculous. The Bible very clearly said that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And he found grace then, not several thousand years later. The fact of the matter is, some have said that some have even portrayed that they got saved in the Old Testament because that's the Old Covenant. They got saved by keeping the law. You need to understand that concept, Old Testament and New Testament, that's not a Bible concept. That's just the translators gave us the book. These are the books that uh, were for Christ. These are the books that came during his time or after his time. It doesn't mean that's a new covenant and an old covenant. That's not what that means. What is the new covenant? The new covenant then is at least this, and uh, not primarily, but it's at least this, that God was going to uh, stop the symbolic ceremonies of the law, not the meaning behind them, as we'll see in a moment, but he was going to stop that. But number two, and primarily, God was telling Israel through Jeremiah that the new covenant is you're going to come back from Babylon, you're going to be in Jerusalem, that's the new thing that's going to happen. And, of course, that was foreshadowing something called the millennium, when God is going to come and be on earth, and this is this, and that's what most of the prophecies are about. You cannot take just the prophecies and look a few days ahead or a few weeks ahead or a few years ahead. In some cases, it's several thousand years ahead. And so Jesus was telling these folks, he was saying, look, I have not come to destroy the law. The Greek word there is katalao. It means to nullify or destroy. He said, I have not come to destroy or to tear down. Actually is what the word means. It's the idea of demolishing a, a fence or demolishing a house. He said, trust me, I did not come to smash down any of the walls that God has erected. These are walls of safety. The fences that God put up in the Old Testament are for our safety. They're guardrails that help us from going off the edge. He said, in no way, shape, or form am I here to tear down any of the walls or guardrails that God has put up. Nothing has been ever set aside, ever. Now, I am fulfilling it, and that's different, but I'm not setting it aside. I'm not tearing it down. I'm here to fulfill it. Five different times in the New Testament, Jesus claimed to be the one who is the theme of the entire Bible. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7, in Matthew, or Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, John chapter 5, verse 39, Luke 24 and 27, and also 24 and 44. Jesus is the theme of the Bible. 
That means hiding in the shadows or somewhere in plain type. Jesus, either in illustration or in fact, is the theme of Scripture. Someone once asked me, have you, you read, you've read all the four Gospels? Yes, I have. I've read all 66 of them. From Genesis to Revelation, they're all the Gospel. Everything in the Bible is about the Lord Jesus. And so then why would God throw anything away? What would be the purpose of that if it's all about Jesus? In fact, look what he says in verse 17. I am not come to destroy the law. Why? Why is God's word always true and always there for us? There are two reasons. Reason number one, it is enacted by God. God's word never changes because it's enacted by God. Look what it says in Genesis, excuse me, Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. Known as the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the beginning of that. God said, and God spake these words. God spake these words. If God spake these words, that means they are both true and binding. God's not going to change scripture to fit society. Society has to change to fit scripture. He said, I have not come to destroy the law or the prophets. Now people say, well, the law, we need to understand what the law is. And I've read through, for example, Romans chapter seven, and there in Romans chapter seven, there's at least uh, three or four, maybe five, six different things that the law is talking about. Sometimes the law is referring to the 10 commandments. Sometimes the law is referring to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Sometimes when God is talking about the law, he's talking about the entire Old Testament. Sometimes when God talks about the law, it's about the entire Bible. Sometimes it's a negative context where they have laws that are, they put in there, Pharisees and Sadducees, that aren't God's law, but they're their laws. And so it's a negative context. And then other times, like I mentioned in Romans chapter 7, it's talking about the law of sin or the law of life or different types of laws. So really, you have to read the context. You can't just blanketly say every time you see the word law, it's talking about the whole Bible or the whole Old Testament. Never so. Not sure. No. It says, I have not come to destroy the law. Now, something that helped me that I'd like to share with you very quickly is the understanding there are three sections to the Old Testament law. Let me give you those. God's law is a set of comprehensive guidelines to give us our best possible life Amen. and to honor the nature of God, which is holy. The first division of the Old Testament law is the moral law. Sometimes people just uh, suggest that the Ten Commandments are the moral law. Actually, there are more parts of the moral law, but basically these are holy, just, unchanging, and anybody with any sense knows that this is what's right and wrong. I mean, you know you don't steal from people, you know you don't lie, you know you don't murder. Those are moral laws. I mean, every culture, every age group, every person knows these are moral laws, and you might act like they're, you know, well, who says they're right? That's, that's just basic morality. You don't have to... Uh, Game, word games are silly here. No, there's a moral law. But it's very clear there's also ceremonial laws. Now, here is where most of the things that are happening today in our current culture, like people trying to uh, say that homosexuality is okay, 
because the Bible is archaic, you know, and they will base it on uh, the ceremonial laws. The ceremony are temporary regulations given to Israel meant to distinguish them from their pagan neighbors. For example, they were to wear something so that when people saw them, they could tell they were different. They were to eat things different. There's nothing wrong with having wool and linen in the same garment, nothing immoral about that. They were just symbols, they were signs. Nothing wrong about eating uh, shrimp or uh, hogs, pigs. I, man, I mean, uh, I'm really upset about our governor messing with our bacon. But anyway, uh, that's a whole other story. But anyway, the fact of the matter is there's nothing immoral about those things. Now there might be unhealthy, I don't know. People have said maybe that is the case. But these are signs. Now, for example, the Sabbath. Is, there's nothing uh, um, just innately moral or immoral about the one day of the week. There, it is a principle that God put into play. And so the Sabbath was clearly a ceremony. Now it's an important one. So these ceremonies are not to us, but they are for us. We can learn from them. Since the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord, we're not bound by the ceremonies. Let me give you a verse. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14. Here in that great prison epistle, Paul is saying, here is why we're not bound by the dietary laws and the, all those laws about what you wear. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he nailed the ordinances or the ceremonies to the cross. Blotting out the handwriting of the ordinances, that was against us. Not that it was bad, it just... These were laws that uh, we no longer have to follow, which was contrary to us, took us out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And so the moral law, nothing's changed. The ceremonies, yes, they've been nailed to the cross, but the principle of the ceremonies have not changed. We're supposed to be different, yes. We're supposed to act different, dress different, look different, uh, have different attitudes, that's still true. And in fact, Many of the ceremonies, in fact, are still in play. For example, we were, they were told under the ceremonies to praise God. Do we still praise God? Yes. They were told to praise God with the instruments. So do we. And so those are ceremonial laws. Nothing has changed in those. Then there's a third part, and that is the judicial and civil laws. That includes everything from murder to restitution for a man gored by an ox or someone's dog that uh, has warned about their dog and their dog does something bad to uh, your family. The fact of the matter is all of the law is for our instruction. That's what Paul told Pastor Timothy. He said, look, tell the people, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and all scripture is profitable. Now, if you were to listen to some in the evangelical church, in fact, a big block of them, they will tell you that not all scripture is profitable. In fact, the Old Testament is actually not profitable. In fact, there's a popular TV preacher that says, if you're in the Old Testament, it's a killer. The law, you know, the letter of the law killeth. Total misunderstanding and misinterpretation. Now, uh, and in fact, even uh, there are still parts of the judicial law that are binding, certainly. For example, God's high standard about marriage was a judicial law. We're supposed to have same kind of high standards about the honoring the covenant of our marriage. 
So the fact of the matter is God's law has never gone anywhere. Why? Because it was enacted by God. Then Jesus said, there's another reason why you must obey scripture. And that is because it is endorsed by the prophets. Look what it says. Think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. These prophets were mighty men of God. They were preachers that validated and reinforced the law. The prophets simply said, this is what God said in the word. This is what God said in the law. That's what a prophet's job was to do. He was supposed to stand up and say, you're breaking God's law. Don't break God's law anymore. That's bad. It is messing up our nation, your life, your families. Don't do it anymore. And we need preachers who will be prophets to hold up the word of God. A.W. Tozier, great uh, Bible teacher, pastor, and a wonderful devotional writer, once described the fact that America needs prophetic preachers. He said his Christianity is to receive any kind of rejuvenation. It must be by some means that's being used by now. The priestly type of a man who carries out his duties, takes his pay, asks no questions, won't do it. The smooth-talking speaker who knows how to make the Christian religion acceptable to everyone, he won't do it. He must be of the old prophet type, a man of God who has seen visions of God and heard a voice from the throne. He must be willing to contradict and to denounce and to protest in the name of God. He will love Christ and the souls of men, but he will fear nothing that breathes with mortal breath. <laughs> Great words. The pop, the, what he's saying here is we need prophets in the pulpit who will honor the word of God. Four important truths that Jesus is saying. First of all, the permanence of scripture. And number two, the perpetuity of scripture. I love that big word. The perpetuity of scripture. Not only does God's word never change, evolve, alter, or adapt, but count on it. God's word will be here for the long haul. Look at verse 18. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass not one jot or tittle in any wise pass from the law. All will be fulfilled. For verily, that little phrase is amen. Look it up. It's the word amen, which means truly or solemnly or absolutely. And boy, how reassuring to have something absolutely. So it starts off by saying absolute. <laughs> now there will be many today who say there are no absolutes. In fact, our current political landscape is so uh, changing daily. Uh, they, they seem to have ethics that change every single week. In fact, they say Hillary Clinton changes ethics so often they're now naming footwear after her. Flip-flops. Anyway. Um, Till heaven and earth pass. The word of God is going to be here when Mother Earth burns up. Put that in your pipe and smoke it there, um, uh, earth lover. <laughs> heaven and earth is going to pass. Earth will pass. Now, I don't think we should be bad stewards of the, what God's given us, but the fact of the matter is it's going to burn up. People say it's getting warmer. You ain't seen nothing yet. It's going to get real warm. It's going to burn up. But Matthew 24, verse 35 says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words never will. Ever. God's word never passes. 
People say, what does a 2,000 year old book have to say for us today? The answer, everything. It is authored by the ancient of days, the eternal, ever-living God. So, of course, it is for us today. Now, notice what this verse says. Back to this verse. Not one jot or tittle shall in any way pass from the law. So here he is. He's looking at this group saying, and he's got a group of thousands, although his main target is his disciples. He says, look, this Bible is from God. Nothing is going to pass away, not even a jot or a tittle. A jot is the Hebrew smallest letter. It's called a yad. It is pronounced with a Y sound. Tittle is a little seraph. I read that the best illustration, although we have an illustration there, but the idea is that it's just a stroke of the pen. In our uh, language, our alphabet, it's kind of like they said, the difference between an E and an F. Both have a vertical line and then either two perpendicular lines or three. The difference between the two and the three is the one stroke of the pen. That's the idea. God said, never anything, not even one stroke of the pen will pass away. Not even one. People say, well, that's, things have changed. You know, the Bible changes. Folks, that is so far from truth. Not even the smallest little letter, not even a stroke of the pen. We have all that God gave in its original manuscripts. We have those today. Now, they're all there. We have them. Thank God for that. Jesus was a Bible believer. 64 different times in his earthly minister, he, meant, he referred to the Old Testament. You'd say, well, wait a second. I think, doesn't the Bible have a lot of contradictions? Jesus validated the Old Testament. If Jesus validated the Old Testament, and it supposedly has all these errors and contradictions, then that means there's two possibilities about Jesus. Number one, there were errors, but Jesus didn't know it. That means he's ignorant. He doesn't seem like he's ignorant to me. Number two, there are errors in the Old Testament, and he did know it, and that means he's dishonest. Do we think in any way, shape, or form Jesus was either ignorant or dishonest? No. Then you have to accept the Old Testament as absolutely the Word of God. And that's a problem because many people today do not. The Gideon magazine carried an alarming article about the next generation of upcoming pastors. Listen closely. George Mardson did some research and he found out that 85% of the students that were asked in America's largest top several, America's largest evangelical seminaries, 85% in the top evangelical seminaries said they do not believe in the inerrancy of scripture. 85% of the upcoming pastors, they took a poll of 10,000 clergy in America and asked if they believe that the scripture is inspired. 95% of the Episcopalians said no. 87% of the Methodists said no. 77% of the American Lutherans said no. And unbelievably, 67% of American Baptist pastors said no, the Bible is not inspired. Well, I promise you one thing, long after those Bible deniers are gone, the blessed Holy Scripture will still be changing lives. It is true and it's never changed. Four important truths. Jesus said it is permanent. It'll be here. It has perpetuity. Number three, the perseverance of Scripture. 
the legitimacy of the word of God for us today. Look what it says in verse 19. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least of the commandments and shall teach men so shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. God's word is here and it's here to stay long haul. If so, it has then a legitimate claim on our life. Now the big issue here is don't ever ever dismiss the Word of God as immaterial, irrelevant, or unrelated. Notice what he says, whosoever therefore. Remember one of the rules of interpretation is this, what's the therefore therefore? <laughs> if there's a therefore in the verse, what's the therefore therefore? Since not one jot or one tittle has ever or will ever no longer be true, then it is of necessity still binding for us today. God's word is divine truth. Because that is the case, it has become a battleground in Christendom. It is under constant attack. We have a direct account from liberal theology. Eggheads who say the Bible's not inspired by God. It has a rear attack from relational theology. Those who say we must interpret the Bible by the experiences we have, meaning let's be more relational, less doctrinal. There are sideway attacks, psychobabble theology, who tell us that current scientific discoveries help clarify the Bible truths. Folks, we get it from the front, Bible believers get it from the back and from the side, and yet the Word of God stands, like the old hymn says, like a rock undaunted. May the raging storms of time, its pages burn with truth eternal, and they glow with a light sublime. The Bible stands, though the hills may tumble, it will firmly stand when the earth shall crumble. I will plant my feet on the firm foundation. The Bible stands. Now notice what it says in verse 19. It says, whosoever shall break one of these commandments. The word break there is an interesting word. It means to loose or to release. If you release yourself or you teach others to be released from the obligations of God's law, then God said, you're low class. That's what he said here. He said, you're least in the kingdom. You're low class, man. F minus, zero star. You're bad dude. Anybody who says we are released that's what the word break is from the scripture. And the temptation is that when the Bible doesn't seem to fit our age, then what good is it? There was an old man who lived in the mountains of Eastern Kentucky. One day, one of the man's grandsons approached him with a problem. He said, Pap, I read the Bible, but it doesn't seem to I don't seem to get it. I don't really understand it. Doesn't seem to stick with me. I'm not sure about it. He said, what's the use of reading the Bible? The grandfather ordered his grandson to go get a basket. The basket that was used to carry the coal into the house. He said, I want you to go down to the river and I want you to get a basket of water. Now those coal baskets, of course, have holes in them. Grandson looked at his dad like, or his grandfather like he was crazy, but he said, okay. He ran down there, maybe just to please his grandfather, 
got that basket, dipped it down into the river, and carried it back to the house. By the time he reached the house, it was absolutely empty, of course. He reached up there and he said, it is useless, Bap, for me to go down there and get that basket, try to get water and bring it up here. It's useless. It's, I can't, it's not gonna work. And the grandfather said, it's useless? Really? He said, take a closer look at the basket. So the grandson looks at the basket and he said, do you notice anything about that coal basket from when the time you took it down to the time you brought it back? He said, well, nothing but it's cleaner. He said, exactly. The word of God, you may not think it's doing much. You may not retain a lot of it, but the fact that it has gone through you, you are a cleaner person. It is valuable. And so the word of God is for us today. And number four, the perfection of Scripture. Jesus said, now look, there are many good creeds. I'm not going to deny that. There are beliefs and persuasions out there that are good, some better than others. Kind of like Job's friends, you know. Some were better, some were worse. But they, every once in a while, said something pretty good. Jesus said, I'm not going to deny that there are some good teaching, even the Pharisees. Have some good teaching. I'm not going to deny that. But as good as it is, it's not scripture. Look what he says in verse 20. Except your righteousness or the things that you believe, your lifestyle, exceeds the best teaching of the Pharisees, you're not going to heaven. He said you could be squeaky clean. I mean squeaky clean. You could, you could even be as good as the Pharisees, but who could do that? He said it's not going to work. He said, you need the beautiful word of God. Today, we live in a very divided America. There are people way to the left whom we might say, wow, that's just some terrible morals. And yet many of them feel like they have real morals. There are people way to the right who they have their concepts. and We may look at them and say, wow, that's weird out there. The fact of the matter is, whether you're way left or way right, unless what you believe is based on Scripture, it is not going to do any good long haul. And that's what Jesus is saying. He looks at these folks and he said, look, I'm telling you, you can believe what the Essenes say, the Zealots. You can look what the Sadducees, the Pharisees. It makes no difference. But unless your righteousness, what you believe is based on Scripture, it is going to come to nothing. You have cheapened the things of God. Let me read to you very quickly this one passage. I love it. This verse, these verses in Romans 10 made such an impact on my spirit several years back. Romans chapter 10 is a great passage about the righteousness of God. Here the Apostle Paul who really tried to be pleasing to God. And so with passion in his soul, verse number one, he says to his Brethren, brethren, my Jewish family, my heart's desire, and prayer to God. By the way, nothing wrong with praying to God for the salvation of those you love. My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. I'm not sure how God in his sovereignty does all that, but nothing wrong with praying for the lost. Verse 2, I'm not going to deny. I bear them record they have a zeal of God. I've talked to so many people, Catholics, Muslim, 
Hindus, you name it, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses. And many times I'll say something like this. Look, I'm not going to deny that you're serious about God. I, I wouldn't deny that. I wouldn't try to convince you that you're not serious about God. You are. But not according to Bible knowledge. That's the big difference. You can be zealous for God, but it's not true knowledge. Look at verse 3. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, go about trying to establish their own righteousness. That's a losing proposition. <laughs> Don't try to do that. You, you're going to fail 10 times out of 10. And here's the core. They have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. That's the issue. I don't want to submit myself to God. That's the problem. That's why God says he resists the proud. Verse 4. How do I know when I submit myself to God? Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. When you believe, you will have the righteousness of Christ. Pauline and I this past week went to the dollar store. I love the dollar store. I love the dollar store. We never get to go very often, or I never get to go very often, but when I go, I love it. Everything's like a dollar. What's a dollar twenty-five now? But everything's a dollar twenty-five. I walk around saying, honey, look at this. It's a dollar. It's a dollar. She said, yeah, it's a dollar. Well, this is a dollar. Yeah, I know. It's a dollar. I love the dollar store. I love the people there. These are great people. I love the people at the dollar store. I love the dollar store. So I was, we were walking along there, and they had do-it-yourself Christmas ornaments. Man, who would have thought Christmas ornaments? You do it yourself. You put little things on them. You, you know, you get it all pretty. I got to thinking later, you know, that's like a lot of lives. We get do-it-yourself Christmas ornaments. We get them all pretty, and on our trees, we put our righteousness, and all our trees are full of Ornaments, self-made, do-it-yourself ornaments, and popcorn. Folks, that's not going to do anything. It will get nowhere. I remember playing tennis for many years with a guy. I've witnessed him so much, but he had this philosophy in his brain. He said, you know, he said, I kind of have the idea. If I've made a few people happy in life, if I've made a few people laugh, and he was always a jokester. He said, if I've made a few people laugh, maybe God will let me into heaven. My friend, that's a do-it-yourself ornament. <laughs> it gets you nowhere. That'd be like trying to go to a 49ers game or a Giants game and then walking up there to the ticket booth and saying, here's what I'm going to pay. They're like, okay, well, go ahead, but you're not getting in. Well, no, I, I have my rights. Okay, but you're not getting in the gate. This is the price. Pay the ticket. You have to come up to the standard or you don't get in. It's as simple as that. My job, I mean, there are folks that are doing the same thing with God. Well, my idea of getting to heaven is this. Or you're like, okay, well, good, but you're not getting in. You're not getting in until you pay the price. Until you pay the price. Let me give you three responses of Bible-believing people that we should have to the Word of God. Number one, we must declare it. James chapter 1, verse 21 says, receive it. Receive it. Folks, never get to the point where you're doubting the Word of God. I've had so many people show me things. Well, what about that? And if you're not careful, it might shake your faith. Over the years, I've gotten to the point where absolutely nothing. I mean, it makes no difference what anybody says. 
I start with a presupposition. It's not a supposition. It's a, it's just a presupposition in my mind. In other words, I, I don't come with, uh, you know, uh, open-minded to the table. Totally closed-minded. The Bible is the Word of God. That's settled. So whatever you show me, it makes no difference. I, I may understand it. I may, I may like, well, I get it and I'll study it. But it doesn't make me doubt that it's from God. I remember years ago when I was a young man, I, I almost got my head turned for a bit about eternal security. I remember reading a verse, I think it was Matthew 24, where it says, those that endure to the end shall be saved. And I was like, oh boy, oh, oh yeah, oh no. <laughs> you know, like, okay. So there's hundreds of verses that say all you have to do is believe. One verse that says you have to endure to the end. Okay, stop for a second. That's not what God is saying. A little bit of interpretation, a little bit of reading. Oh, I get it. So what I'm saying is, folks, no matter what anybody says, just let it roll off. You're like, whatever. Now, I may not understand it. You don't have to understand it. But I always approach things with this understanding. I receive and declare the word of God. Number two, desire it. Psalm 138, verse 2, I've exalted my word above my name. Do you lovingly hold the word of God as the final authority in your life? Charles Spurgeon said, God forbid should we ever dishonor the word of God. And then number three, declare it, desire it, defend it. Defend the word of God. In that amazing edgy epistle, Jude, the half-brother of our Lord, said, earnestly contend for the faith. Earnestly contend for the faith. I close with this illustration. Andrew Bonar was a great Scott theologian, pastor of the 19th century. Well known for his uh, undying love and defense of the word of God. He had three rules. Here's what he said. Number one, I will not speak to any man before I speak to Jesus. Number two, I will not do anything with my hands until I have been on my knees. And number three, I will not read the papers until I have read my Bible. Folks, will you today say on Christ the solid rock I stand? I am a Bible-believing Christian. I stand with Jesus. I love the Word of God. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed this morning. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.